Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Foria Wellness. That's spelled F-O-R-I-A Wellness. And I recently got to have their chief of content on this podcast to talk about a lot relating to female intimacy and sexual health and how their products could be very complementary to that. If you're not familiar with them, Foyera is here and designed to help you have really good sex and intimacy and more of it, and the kind that makes you feel deeply nourished and fully alive. They create award-winning products that support the intimate experience across every stage of your life, from menstruation to menopause and more. Their sex and intimacy collection features life-changing plant-based formulas designed to enhance pleasure and open the door to better sex and better intimacy. So whether you are looking to spice up your relationships or give the gift of pleasure to a friend or a loved one, Foria's unique formulas are for everybody. In particular, I recommend that you check out their Awaken Arousal Oil, which is their cult favorite bestseller. It's a topical oil designed specifically for female pleasure to help heighten arousal and intensify orgasms while supporting libido and sexual comfort. They include nine pure and potent organic botanicals, so it's great for solo or partner sex and is most effective when you apply it about 15 to 30 minutes before intimacy so the botanicals have time to absorb and take effect. Fans love this oil for making sex even more pleasurable, intensifying their orgasms, and supporting their sex drive, and partners love it too. You can read glowing reviews on their website all day, but really you have to try it to understand, and I recommend that you do. The good news is that they are offering a special deal just for Wellness Mama listeners, where you can save 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com slash wellnessmama. That's F-O-R-I-A-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S dot com slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama at checkout to save. This episode is brought to you by Somavetic, which is one of my personal solutions for dealing with EMFs in my home. If you're not familiar, Somavetic creates a harmonic field in your environment, which reaches 100 feet in all directions and can penetrate through walls and floors. It's important to note that this does not block EMFs in the traditional sense, but rather it supports the body and helps bring it back into equilibrium from the effects of EMFs. We know that EMFs negative effects can be measured by various biomarkers such as blood pressure, heart rate variability, blood oxygen levels, and sleep. And studies show that Somavetic is helping to improve these measurements and also increases cellular regeneration. Their amber and Vedic models also restructure your drinking water, which improves absorption and hydration. If you're interested, they have a lot of science about this on their site at somavetic.com slash pages slash science, and they show images of water and blood samples before and after exposure. They also have a published study on the AMBER model, which shows cellular regeneration after exposure to mobile phone radiation. I personally found that the sum can help improve sleep, focus, energy levels, mood, and even in their testing that it can lower free radical levels. Many customers who suffer from headaches and migraines report improvement from using Somavetic, and I love that they have a 60-day money-back guarantee, so it's risk-free to try, and it comes with a five-year warranty. I have multiple of these in my home, and I love the soothing glow that they have and that it helps support our bodies in dealing with the EMFs that we are exposed to every day. I, of course, also like to turn off the Wi-Fi and excess exposure to EMFs at night, but this is just another insurance policy that I love having in my house. You can find out more and get a discount when you try Somavetic by going to somavetic.com slash discount slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama for an exclusive discount at checkout. So again, that's S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C dot com slash discount slash wellnessmama to try it out and make sure to use that code wellnessmama to get a discount. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I really enjoyed this conversation that was very wide-ranging and full of a lot of really relevant life advice that also touches on the psychology of eating and topics like how we can encourage our kids to want to eat healthier foods. But I'm here with someone named Dr. Sandy, who trains people to become functional medicine health coaches. She also helps practitioners and businesses hire them, and she has done so much work in that world for decades as founder and CEO of the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy, which is a collaboration with the Institute for Functional Medicine. And she's a leader in this field, an educator. She's a licensed clinical psychologist for over 40 years. And she was also a pioneer in the use of breathwork and biofeedback and taught courses in the psychology of eating. She ran clinics for diagnosing and treating anxiety and ADHD. She is the author of 
how to become a health coach, the career that can bring people joy, and then some other books as well. She's board certified in functional medicine and proud to serve as a member of the Forbes Business Council. And she mentions when we talk about that the greatest joy in her life is being a grandma to twin babies. And I actually love the direction that this conversation went because we talk about her work as a health psychologist and developing healthy psychology around eating and a healthy relationship with food and how we can nurture this in our families. But we also get to talk about, and she's very vulnerable and truthful about some of the pitfalls that she fell into as someone who cared about health and how that actually created some struggle and tension within her marriage and within her family and what she would do differently if she could do it all over again, as well as some of her top lessons of a 50-year marriage of raising children and of now being a grandmother. And it's it was so fun to talk to someone with such wide-ranging and beautiful life experience and who was willing to share so openly about what she learned from that life experience. So without further ado, I want you to meet and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Sandy. Dr. Sandy, welcome and thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am excited to learn from you today. And in our communication before this episode, it looks like I have many things I can learn from you and that our listeners will learn from you. But I also have a note in my show notes that you once taught disco dancing. And I just have to hear a little bit about this story because I will admit dancing is my scary thing of the year that I'm trying to get out of my comfort zone and do. So I want to hear about this experience. (laughs) Well, it was 1977 and disco was all the rage. Saturday Night Fever was the hot movie with John Travolta. And I was uh, living in a suburban community north of Chicago at the time, and I belonged to an organization of women, and one of them was a dancer. And she taught this class, disco dancing, and it was at the Neighborhood Rec Center. And she said, oh, I've got so many other things going on tonight. I need a substitute. And so I volunteered and jumped in. And my motto has always been do stuff scared or just have a very good quick start. And that's so uh, often don't think about the consequences, which can, can also be a negative. But I just jumped in and it was a lot of fun. I taught some line dances and uh, it was it was great. And then they asked me to continue. So I, I taught it for a while. I also taught belly dancing for a time and took belly dancing in the early 70s. So I've always loved dance. In fact, I still take dance. I take ballet a few times a week and I take tap and it's great. And that, I've always said there's no such thing as embarrassment or shame, not comparing yourself to others. And so the ballet, I'm the worst person in the class and I don't care. Well, I love so many life lessons that I didn't even expect in that answer. And I love the motto of do things scared. I'm actually belly dancing is the one I'm attempting to tackle this year. And I'm learning very hands-on how much that bodily movements, which I knew logically, but really help us also repattern our nervous system. And I love your approach of like no embarrassment, no shame, just being in your body. I think that's a lesson I'm just beginning to learn as an adult after more than 35 years. So I love that you got to talk about that as well. And I would guess a lot of our listeners may already be familiar with you, but for those who aren't, can you also just share a little bit about your journey within the health world and the work that you do? Sure. Well, where I am now is not where I started out. And that's a life journey for so many people. So I started out, and this was back in the 60s, when you're going to college at that time, typically you can be going into teaching, you can go into nursing, you could be a secretary. Well, I chose teaching. I always wanted to be a school teacher. And that was my major. And then I didn't do so well in student teaching. (laughs) I couldn't control the classroom. Uh, And so I shifted and I did a lot of shifts in my life and my career. And so I decided I would stay in school and I would master in learning disabilities. I got a degree and I, well, would you know, I got landed my first job in teaching a classroom with kids who are not only learning, have learning disabilities, but behavior issues as well. So eventually I had to learn behavior management techniques and that led to a strong interest in stress, which really wasn't talked about. We're talking, this was 1971, 72. And I still have notes from that era where I would do workshops for parents and for teachers. How do you control stress? And I started teaching breathing techniques. And at that time, we didn't call it breath work. It was just breathing. And that led to thinking, well, I'll go back to school. I always loved learning. And so I got a PhD in clinical psychology. 
But at the time, and to some extent, it still is about what's wrong with you. And that just never sat well with me, even when I was in learning disabilities. And I spent some time in a te teaching teachers how to teach kids with special needs. And I always focused on their strengths. So I'd write, I do these really long batteries of testing for kids. And everyone was just focused on what's wrong with them and how do we remediate the deficits? And my focus was, well, he's really good at sports and he's really funny. And uh, yeah, his score on that test wasn't so good, but he laughed out loud in his answer. It was so creative. And so even back then I was picking out this strengths approach, which we now refer to as positive psychology. So I became really a health psychologist and I was integrating breathing and relaxation techniques and imagery and ways to look at what you're thinking and change those thoughts. And I was working with people who had physical issues like migraine headaches or irritable bowel or insomnia. And they were coming to me for what we called self-regulation strategies. People were getting better compared to the psychologists who were only psychotherapy. You know, it's just you spend the session in your head and then you end up feeling worse when you got out. And so I was really focused on the how you can make yourself feel better. And that led to an interest in nutrition. I was always interested in nutrition because of my own issues. And so I studied with the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, and as a psychologist, it was out of my scope of practice to do a lot of the things that the doctors who go through IFM are taught, like or interpreting labs or prescribing medications or even supplements. But I had a lot of people at the time come to me. They were in my local area and they were saying, you know, I'm a health coach, but I love what you've been doing. Can you teach it to me? And so I decided to take a chance, talk about doing stuff scared, decided hey, I'm going to start a program to start training health coaches. At the time, I had Elise, who's my business partner and co-founder. She was working with me. We had this small little office in the northern suburbs of Chicago, no windows. And we were just dreaming big, like, well, what if we collaborated with IFM? And so what if instead of just training local health coaches, what if we really went remote and trained around the world? So IFM liked the idea. They had wanted to start a health coaching training program for a while, but they felt the right person hadn't come along to run it and organize it and develop it. So that's what I did. And I was 65 at the time. And of course, there were a lot of naysayers, um, including my husband who said, what do you need this for? This is a huge project. Like, you know, this is the time of our lives. We could be traveling and you've been a psychologist for like, you know, 40 years or so. Just just retire or just see a few more clients and, and then take it easy. But I had a mission. I really felt I saw the health of our country. I saw kids suffering, uh, getting worse. And so I had this mission to see a health coach in every doctor's office. And so that is what drives me. I just wake up every day thinking about this mission. And uh, that is really um, just so tied to my purpose, my identity. And so it's been a wonderful journey. I love that story. And I hope some of you guys are watching on video because I will have said I am, I would not have guessed your age correctly. I would have guessed many, many years younger because you look phenomenal for what it's worth. But also, I think we're very aligned because that is actually what originally got me into this health world as well was reading that our kids for the first time in two centuries would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And that's sort of the mission that got me on this path to hopefully help change that and that keeps me awake at night and gets me up in the morning. So I love that that was part of your purpose and driver as well. Um, I've also seen in your work, and you mentioned in our prep for this interview, making a differentiation between positive psychology and, and it's not happyology. And I think this is a good foundational piece before we go into some of these other parts of psychology related to nutrition even. So I would love for you to expound on that a little bit. Sure. So positive psychology is really the study of what's right with you and not what's wrong. It's evidence-based. It's a lot like studying functional medicine. You're looking at how do people thrive? What are the characteristics? What are the components of a life well-lived? And to come up with this, it's the researchers, Marty Seligman in the mid-90s, they and he and a team of researchers went around the world. They looked at different cultures, religions, uh, and 
psychology literature, philosophy, and they came up with this concept called PERMA. What is PERMA? It's an acronym, and the P is positive emotion. So these are the element, the five elements we need to thrive. P is we need to experience happiness, joy in our life. The E is engagement. You might consider it like flow. We need to have activities, things that we're lost in. So if I'm speaking to you right now and I'm so engaged and right now this is my world, I'm in a flow state. And then the R is relationships that are giving you meaning, that are filled with love. And the M is meaning. We need meaning and purpose in our lives. And the A is achievement, no matter how small and we may discount it. I got up. And I made my bed. That's achievement. Um, and so these elements of PERMA are what make life worth living and how we thrive. How we get there is through our character strengths. Character strengths are these traits that we all have that allow us to thrive. And some are of the heart and some are of the mind. There are things like bravery and curiosity and love of learning. One of my top ones is zest. Like I'm always moving around, which is why I thought I had ADD when I was uh, young because I can't sit still. I'm antsy all the time, but it's zest. It's energy for life. Creativity is another one. Uh, spirituality. So this is positive psychology, but some people misinterpret it as happyology and they go overboard. And it's like, I must be happy at all times. Well, no. Anger, sadness, these are natural emotions and we have a balance of them. So we experience other feelings that you might consider more negative or on the darker side or unpleasant. Uh, but it's not like I, I must be happy. And sometimes we sell ourselves a bill of goods thinking we must be happy all the time. Or we see these self-help books or these quotes on Instagram about, you know, you can do it 100%. Well, no, um, sometimes there's failure. And when you accept that and move on and learn from it, that is a component of a life well-lived. You've achieved something. You've achieved a recognition. You've tried something. You've learned something. And so that is really what positive psychology is. It's deeply tied to physical well-being. So when we talk about flourishing, it's really not just emotional, but it's mental. And we don't separate the two. I think that's such an important foundational piece. And I've thought of that in relation to parenting as well, which I know we're going to get to touch on a little bit also. But with the idea, if we are outcome focused and focus on something like happiness, for instance, then anything that is not happiness feels like a failure. And especially in our kids, I could see that creating more stress. Or if we think we're only supposed to be happy, then anything besides that feels like a deviation from the path when really all of those emotions exist together on this path of life and aren't. And then we can hopefully not have that same judgment of happiness, good, sadness, bad, and the like simplistic categories we tend to put things in. And there's so many directions that we can go with this. I know that you work as a health psychologist and that you do something called integrating cognitive behavior behavior principles with positive psychology and mind body strategies, which is a mouthful. But I know that you can explain that and it kind of walk us through how that relates to physical and mental health. Sure. So what we see, particularly in healthcare, is people are in silos. They have their way of practicing medicine. They have their orientation. And if you read the psychology literature or self-help books, you see that one person has a system and they're going to say, okay, do it my way. And another person has a system that is saying, do it my way. And that's where we got all these disciplines. And it can get really confusing and overwhelming, particularly as a parent, you're looking at parenting techniques. So a lot of what we hear in the self-help world comes from these disciplines, particularly cognitive therapy. So I had the great fortune to study with Dr. Albert Ellis. He was one of the developers of the field, along with Albert, uh, Aaron Beck and a few others. And the idea is that we disturb ourselves because of our thoughts, how we interpret events. Now, this is pretty commonplace right now. A lot of people talk about this, but how to do it is something that a lot of people don't go into. And so it's really learning how to think scientifically instead of being ruled by our emotions. So when I was practicing as a psychologist, I would have people prove it. For example, they might say something like, or something happens in their life and they say, oh, I failed again. I can't do anything right. 
we would take that thought that they just said, verbalized, or they thought to themselves it was self-talk, and we would pull it apart. We'd put it under the microscope. What do you mean? Prove it. Just like you were on a witness stand, where's the evidence? How did you come to that realization? Now, that's many people think that's, well, I have to spend 10 years in therapy, doing trauma work, like how that happened, but it's really not. It's looking at from a scientific, like approving that. It's that old logic approach where 100% of the time, you mean your entire life from the time you were born, you can't, you never did anything right. And then they'll say, well, no, you know, I said, okay, that just be, if there was one exception, then your statement, I never do anything right. It's all or nothing. It means 100% of the time, every waking moment from the time you were born, you've not done anything right. No, that's not true. Okay, then let's modify that statement. Instead of never, sometimes, occasionally, I'm human like all the rest of us. And so I will make mistakes. And then you deal with, okay, that's building resiliency. How are you going to move on? What are you going to plan for in the uh, in the future? Maybe when a certain situation that you just interpreted as you made a mistake, maybe you could rehearse it in advance. We do that a lot. I used to do that a lot when I was working with parents, where you rehearse before I open the door when I come home from work. This is what I'm going to say, no matter what my child is doing or saying, this is how I'm going to react or not react. And so you have problem solving approaches. So that's the cognitive side. It's a mental process. It's logical reasoning. The positive psychology is the emotional side. The positive psychology is having a sense that you have these essential traits. You were born with them. You were born with courage. You were born with curiosity, with love of learning, with forgiveness, with humility, with perseverance, with perspective, with love, uh, justice. There's 24 of these strengths. You have them. And when you start using them, that is nurturing. You're nurturing yourself. Every cell is welcoming that. And then we integrate the mind-body part. What is that? It's having an awareness. So if I'm talking to you right now and I am all like, okay, well, I'm going to change my posture. I'm going to release some tension in my shoulders. I'm going to take a soothing breath. So I have paired those physical techniques with the thought changing, with the positive psychology sense. And the three of those are the recipe for truly flourishing and thriving. I love that. And that was so beautifully explained. And there, I have a note also in the show notes that if you had to do a TED Talk in a week, it would be, I think, something along the lines of how to refuse to make yourself miserable about anything, which I absolutely love that title. And as you just touched on, like so often that is within our own story and our own interpretation, not the reality of what's actually happening. And I also love that you called out some of those specific qualities because things like courage, curiosity, love of learning are sort of core principles in my house and in my homeschooling with my kids. And something I've really tried to pay attention to calling out in them from a young age, instead of just saying like, oh, you're smart or oh, you're pretty saying like, oh, I loved how courageous you were when you just did that. Or that was a really beautiful, curious question or things like that to like just reinforce those things in a positive light for them. And I know that this goes, well, before I guess we move on, is there anything else related to that idea of how to refuse to make yourself miserable about anything that you want to touch on? Because I think that statement is incredible. Well, I want to acknowledge Dr. Albert Ellis, who I trained with, and that was uh, one of his books. It, I think it might be out of print. You could still get a used copy. It's how to stubbornly refuse to make yourself miserable about anything. Yes, anything. And when I was working as a psychologist, just about everybody I saw read that book. He had books of parenting, and I did workshops on it. And really, that is the sense of empowerment. And I know you love to talk about you're the primary care provider. And you are in charge of your mental health. You are your thoughts. You can change them. Now, they may occur split second, automatic, but you catch them. It's like you have a safety net and you catch them and you blow them up and you look at them and you rework them. So instead of what if you say, so what if? So you imagine the thing that you fear happening. Like, what if I make a mistake? What if I uh, say something that's really off on this podcast? And maybe it's so horrible that you decide you're not even going to air it. Okay. What's the worst thing that can happen? It won't be aired and people won't learn about work I do. 
but is my life in danger? Will my life go on? I, will I remember this five years from now? How about 10 years? How about 20 years? Unfortunately, you know, if you're, I'm 73, so I have that long perspective to see that all the things that I made myself miserable about in my 20s, in my 30s, and so on are irrelevant. That's such a great reframe. And I think it also sort of leads into the next thing I'm excited to talk to you about, which is that you are also an expert in the psychology of eating. And I think this is going to be a springboard into a whole conversation about food habits within family and developing a healthy relationship with food. But I guess to start off broad, can you just kind of define for us some of that idea of the psychology of eating and how that relates to having a relationship with food? Yeah, there's an old saying, you are what you eat. You want to have a personality test. And I spent many years giving people those kinds of personality tests. What you eat, what you put on your plate, how you eat, when you eat, your thoughts about eating. It's like a Rorschach, which is the famous inkblot test. You learn some about somebody from how they eat. And we know, and I used to teach this uh, for many years. I still uh, teach this section in the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. And it's what we bring. When we sit down to eat, we are bringing our personality. This is formed even with little kids. The picky eater, the child who refuses to eat becomes the bad child, the messy eater, the OCD has to have everything in a certain way on the plate, the rebellious eater. Every teen goes through that. If you're you're vegan, I, one of the biggest mistakes I made was raising my kids vegan. It was in the 90s, the low-fat craze. They're going to change. They're, that's their, one of the ways we express ourselves through food. Our identities are shaped through food. Also, our family messages about food. Food is love. Food is caring. Food could be withdrawn. There's also our friends. Uh, we know that when we are with certain friends, we tend to eat all the social pressures. You're out to eat. And uh, what will people say if I order this? If I don't order this, you're judged and or fear of being judged. There's also gender differences. Uh, this has been, I was actually saw this in a Facebook group the other day where someone said, yeah, but guys would never order a salad. Well, okay. <laughs> um, and I did some research way back and, and yeah, there's guys um, who are kind of the traditional male a uh, wave of, of being um, would have certain guy food. You know, you're not going to serve little cucumber sandwiches when you have a bunch of guys for the Super Bowl party. Speaking of that, there are holidays, there are nationalities, there are cultural, religious associations. So these all shape what we eat and how we eat and who we eat with. Food is joy. And that's a big part of the psychology of eating. It's also emotion, when to stop, how you feel about stopping, how you blame yourself, how you hate yourself if you've eaten something that you've been told you shouldn't. Uh, there's also carrying things too far, which is orthorexia, where you are so afraid of foods. And I've certainly been guilty of that, where every you look at a menu and every single thing represents danger. Um, and all this is played out in the family. And I have seen it personally. And uh, it is something that if we can focus on healing this part, it could really start to heal relationships. I agree so much. It seems like we we see extremes in the nutrition world and in people's eating habits. And like you, I noticed that actually when I started helping some male athletes with their genetics and their nutrition, I was like, wow, men have a different language around food and body image than women do. And they were focused on the positive of trying to eat enough calories to actually nourish their body. So that was already, I felt like a healthier approach. They didn't use words like lose weight, which I've always thought psychologically, we don't want to lose anything. Like our brain's kind of wired not to want to lose something. And they, they use words like they got cut or they are leaner or things that tended to have a more positive connotation than a lot of the words that women use. And it just for the first time kind of made me pay attention to the language I was using when it came to the foods that I was putting in my body and what I was hoping my sort of physiology would look like as a result of that. And I know that there's that could probably be a whole episode all in and of itself, but I think this springboards into for those of us who are parents and we're wanting to both model and raise our kids with a healthy relationship with food and also healthy eating habits. What would be some of the principles you would give parents in sort of guiding that? And um, I have some as well, but I really want to hear yours. Yeah, I think first and foremost is to give up the rigidity, that character strength of humility, to have an appreciation of what you don't know, to avoid dogma, 
to the, to focus on that what you think is true right now, the science will change. So I look back on what I knew in the 80s, in the 90s. So uh, when my kids were born in the 80s, and I read a book by John Robbins, Diet for a New America, and this is horrible, the way they slaughtered the animals, and I'm going to stop eating meat. And that morphed into chicken and other animal foods eventually. And then I was reading the things that were really agreeing with my beliefs. And so I, it was macrobiotic at the time. I was in a food co-op. This was many years before Whole Foods. And so I would drive like 45 minutes to this little health food store. They didn't have very many back then to get groceries. I, had a, I was in a food co-op. We had a big truck come down from Madison, Wisconsin. And so there was a bunch of us who thought we were right. And we were so self-righteous. And what we didn't realize is that the science is going to change. And that's one of the, when I look back, that was one of the biggest mistakes that I made. Why did I deprive my girls of those omega-3s? And eventually they started, I started introducing seafood. And then of course, in, uh, when they went to college, I have a picture in my, um, my daughter, you just tasted steak. I was on a date and we went to a steakhouse and oh my God, it's so good. And then my other daughter who was like, she's like, oh, this beef jerky. Wow. And it's, um, and so they, that was their way of rebelling and other do the opposite where they will be in a carnivore household and they'll come home and they'll announce that they're a vegan. And so I went through all those trends. I was a raw vegan for a time, never felt sicker in my life during that short period of being a raw vegan, but it's seeing how things have changed and the relationships that were compromised. So with my husband, he never bought into that. And I remember one argument that we had, and I was saying like, all you want to eat, like you have this belief that you have to have an entree and the entree has to be steak or chicken or piece of fish and then a little bit of vegetables. You can like just have the vegetables on your plate. Why do you need all this? And the one vegetable he liked to eat was cucumber. Fast forward to today, what's a typical meal that I am eating? It would be a steak because as what I've learned is when you're menopause and you're old like me, you really need so, so much protein and animal protein, especially. And so now I go out to a restaurant and I order like him, I'll order a steak and my vegetable is cucumbers. I'm, like Melanie Avalon talks about like eating cucumbers. Like, oh my God, he got it right. And I was so sure. And it caused so many arguments, particularly I remember the day my uh, older daughter was two and he snuck her out of the house and he went, or maybe she was three or four. Cause that was, I stopped eating meat when she was two. And so he went to this very popular hot dog place in our community. I threw a fit. You gave her a hot dog. What? It was like, and I, I look back, it was, it was like, I thought it was the worst thing, but the worst thing was compromising the relationship. My daughters will talk about like, they will go out, they used to go out to a restaurant and like be afraid. They knew that, you know, even if I didn't say anything out loud to them, they knew how I felt. I knew that I would, that I was disapproving of what they ordered or Thanksgiving. I remember one Thanksgiving with my late sister-in-law and this was, again, it's the height of the low fat vegan craze. So uh, we were sitting at dinner and they were eating the stuffing and they were, this is really good stuffing. And my sister-in-law said, yeah, I put in chicken fat and I like had a fit. They're like, I think I took it off or wanted to take it off their plates. Or even if I didn't, they knew it was like it ruined the whole tone of the event. So how would I redo that? I would say there, this is not, the, you don't compromise the relationship. The good feelings that you have by being with family are healing, are positive for your well-being, physically and emotionally. The stress that I was experiencing and what I was passing on to them was so much worse than if they had just enjoyed the turkey, the stuffing and the turkey instead of the awful tofurkey that I had brought for their portion. So, so I think that would be the biggest advice to really to not be so sure and to choose yourself how you're going to eat be that role model for your kids 
but also not be that person who won't allow your kids to have a cupcake at the birthday party. Now, unless they have celiac or known food allergies, that's different. Um, but if you're doing this for other reasons, because you think it's going to be healthier, the damage that you might be doing will be far less uh, less positive. It'll be unhealthy. I think that's so, well, every point you just made is so important, but especially that idea of staying in humility and realizing we might not have all the answers. And in fact, we statistically likely do not. I know even in just the 15 years I've been in the health world, I have seen evidence change on so many things and I've changed my opinion. And I now have respect for people in the health world who are open about like, I got new information that showed a different perspective and I considered it and I changed my mind. I think that actually shows a good character, not a lack of character. I think that's actually helps us all grow in the process. And I also love everything that you said about always putting that relationship first, because my next question to you was going to be, what about all the women who I get who ask me, how do I make my husband eat this way? And my advice had always been, first of all, start with the language of that. Your husband is an adult and he's an autonomous human being and you aren't can't make him do anything, nor can you technically make your children do anything and respect his ability to make his own food choices. I kind of look at it like the division of responsibility where I consider myself responsible for making sure there's nutrient-dense food available in my house and making sure my kids have food to eat. It's their responsibility to choose to eat that food or not, to choose if they're hungry or not, and to listen to their bodies. And that means if they're at a friend's house and there's whatever the food may be, it's their decision and choice to eat it or not. It's also their decision and choice that they don't feel great after certain foods and they learn that lesson then versus, and like, I think that really just touches on your point that you made so eloquently of put the relationship first. Like there's nothing certainly in the food world that should come or it all come into play with our love for our family members. A hundred percent. You said that so well. So how can I make my husband eat the way I wanted him to eat? So that based on cognitive therapy, breaking that down. How can you make someone, can you make someone, can you get into somebody's brain and make them do something that you think is desirable? That would be as nutty as thinking that you can make uh, the chair that you're, you know, the chair that's over there, get up and take a walk. You can't make that chair do anything. You can't walk. You can't make somebody change their mind. You can listen to them. You can ask questions. Why do you like that? But also you can sometimes have a sense, you don't know when change will happen. So a number of years ago, uh, we had we we're having a live event and Dr. Tom O'Brien was a speaker. We were having a, a graduation to celebrate our, our graduates. And so my husband was there and uh, Dr. Tom mentioned something to him. They were talking and said, you know, I have like a quarter, half a cup of blueberries every day because blueberries are really good for your brain. And something clicked. And my husband heard that. And that was from then on every single day he has those blueberries. I have nothing to do with it. Sometimes hearing from a reading an article, somebody that is a, a neutral source, because our relationships are full of layers and layers of emotion. He's the little boy and I'm telling him what to do. I'm his mommy. That relates back to that. Or the more I try and make him, this is, I've, I've been married 50 years. And so the more I've been trying to make him change for 50 years, it's not working. Um, all it's done is create conflict create arguments, create resentments. And uh, it is what he chooses to change. But I, what I have learned is that I focus on what he's doing well. Okay, he it may not change his eating habits, but if I hear something about a supplement, so for example, urolithin A, time my nutrition, I've been really hot on that. And I just said, oh, Ellen, like, do you want to try this? Oh, sure, order it for me. So that is something that he will do as opposed to changing food habits. Uh, but it is something that, and the other thing I look at, well, at least now he, he go, he buys organic. If he's buying something that I might think is highly inflammatory, but it, he got it, it's an organic version. Okay, that's something. Um, and so you take little steps towards change. And we teach this when teaching coaches. And that's something else that people can benefit from working with a coach if it gets bad enough. And so, the, if, but the, the main thing is to dissect that. I can't make him change. What is he doing right? The same, that positive psychology perspective. You look at what's right 
as opposed to always zeroing in on what's wrong. Yeah, I can see that general being gen- generally good advice that ripples over into so many areas of life. And like you said, I've said on this podcast so many times that we are each our own primary healthcare provider because we're the ones choosing the inputs that we put in our bodies and our lifestyles every day. But in a sense, I think moms are also kind of like health coaches because we're also guiding our families on these on these topics. And I do feel like, like you mentioned in that example, what we model is going to be much more impactful long-term, especially with our kids than what we say and what we insist on. And I think the two parts of that are I try to give my kids as much independence and respect for their independence as possible, while also making sure that every single day they hear me tell them, I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you ever have to do to earn that. And there's nothing you can ever do to take away from that. So that hopefully they like learn to take responsibility for their own choices. And they learn that I respect those choices as they make them. But it also makes me think of that idea that you can't be a prophet in your own hometown kind of idea. And I realize even with my teenagers, as amazing and respectful as they are, if they hear something from someone else, whether it be in a podcast or another health expert, they're like, mom, did you know? And then they internalize the thing I've been saying or doing for so long. And I've noticed in my friend's kids, I can say those things in passing and they'll go home and tell my friend, hey, mom, this Katie said I should take creatine. Can I take creatine or whatever it may be? And they listen. So I think it's just a funny progression how that happens. And it seems even more important with a life partner or a spouse, making sure you keep that level of respect and not kind of defaulting to that parent-child dynamic of trying to tell them what to do. This podcast is brought to you by Foria Wellness. That's spelled F-O-R-I-A wellness. And I recently got to have their chief of content on this podcast to talk about a lot relating to female intimacy and sexual health and how their products could be very complementary to that. If you're not familiar with them, Boyera is here and designed to help you have really good sex and intimacy and more of it. And the kind that makes you feel deeply nourished and fully alive. They create award-winning products that support the intimate experience across every stage of your life from menstruation to menopause and more. Their sex and intimacy collection features life-changing plant-based formulas designed to enhance pleasure and open the door to better sex and better intimacy. So whether you are looking to spice up your relationship or give the gift of pleasure to a friend or a loved one, Foria's unique formulas are for everybody. In particular, I recommend that you check out their Awaken Arousal Oil, which is their cult favorite bestseller. It's a topical oil designed specifically for female pleasure to help heighten arousal and intensify orgasms while supporting libido and sexual comfort. They include nine pure and potent organic botanicals, so it's great for solo or partnered sex and is most effective when you apply it about 15 to 30 minutes before intimacy so the botanicals have time to absorb and take effect. Fans love this oil for making sex even more pleasurable, intensifying their orgasms, and supporting their sex drive. And partners love it too. You can read glowing reviews on their website all day, but really you have to try it to understand. And I recommend that you do. The good news is that they are offering a special deal just for Wellness Mama listeners, where you can save 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com slash wellnessmama. That's F-O-R-I-A. W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S dot com slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama at checkout to save. This episode is brought to you by Somavedic, which is one of my personal solutions for dealing with EMFs in my home. If you're not familiar, Somavedic creates a harmonic field in your environment, which reaches 100 feet in all directions and can penetrate through walls and floors. It's important to note that this does not block EMFs in the traditional sense, but rather it supports the body and helps bring it back into equilibrium from the effects of EMFs. We know that EMFs negative effects can be measured by various biomarkers such as blood pressure, heart rate variability, blood oxygen levels, and sleep. And studies show that Somavedic is helping to improve these measurements and also increases cellular regeneration. Their amber and Vedic models also restructure your drinking water, which improves absorption and hydration. If you're interested, they have a lot of science about this on their site at somavedic.com slash pages slash science, and they show images of water and blood samples before and after exposure. They also have a published study on the AMBER model, which shows cellular regeneration after exposure to mobile phone radiation. I personally found that the sum can help improve sleep, focus, energy levels, mood, and even in their testing that it can lower free radical levels. 
Many customers who suffer from headaches and migraines report improvement from using Somovedic, and I love that they have a 60-day money-back guarantee, so it's risk-free to try, and it comes with a five-year warranty. I have multiple of these in my home, and I love the soothing glow that they have and that it helps support our bodies in dealing with the EMFs that we are exposed to every day. I, of course, also like to turn off the Wi-Fi and excess exposure to EMFs at night, but this is just another insurance policy that I love having in my house. You can find out more and get a discount when you try Somavedic by going to somavedic.com slash discount slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama for an exclusive discount at checkout. So again, that's S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C.com slash discount slash wellnessmama to try it out and make sure to use that code wellnessmama to get a discount. But I can only imagine you must have a plethora of lessons from 50 years of marriage. And I'm curious if any more come to mind for people who are much not or not quite as far down that path or who many fewer years in than you are. Yeah. So well, that, that is number one, that you cannot make them change. And if you're trying to, you could always flip it to say, how, ha, how has he or she how tried to make me change? And what do I do? I don't like that. And so that's number one. Second is we tend the things that usually bug us about our partner are things that actually will lead to a good long-term relationship because there's a theory of relationship that has to do with taking, throwing off the part of you that is underdeveloped. And let me give you an example. So I didn't grow up in a home that where finances were discussed. My father and mother were working people. Uh, he died when I was nine and my mom had a hard time making ends meet. So I didn't grow up. We didn't discuss. I didn't know what the stock market was you know, until I like, took a course in college, really, in economics. So, But I never liked that side of it. I never liked financing, balancing budgets. So I tended to be a spendthrift. I had, um, I tended to, and that was being a quick start as well and being impulsive, like, oh, buy something. Oh, no, what did I do? I spent too much money. So my husband was the exact opposite. He was the cautious one. He knew how to keep a budget. I can't tell you how many times I would, um, he would like, I would throw something away because I'm, you know, I'll just say, oh, I don't need to open this up, throw it away because I do things so quickly. And he will go and he's taking out the garbage and he'll, he sorts through it and he'll say, uh, this was a refund check and I think he wanted to keep this. And so that's an example of like, I would rely on him. Like I was ready to sign a contract. He would look at the fine details. And this extended for quite some time, and it works really well. And I'm not saying that, uh, and this is a traditional kind of marriage where a woman is is not, you know, my, like my mother-in-law didn't do nothing. And when she was widowed, she was totally adrift. So you want to certainly take charge and, and you are, you know, I was working and I was handling money, but there are never things that I like to do. So and, but the things that would annoy me, and this is what I'm really saying about it that these are the habits that he had that would drive me crazy. He could never make a decision. He just waits so long and let's do it already. And you have you are buying a new toothbrush. You'll go to 10 stores and it's annoying that he is so slow moving and so but the what I'm thinking about is how many times that benefited me. So when uh, you have these like this old saying opposites attract so you look at how you complement one another. And if he didn't have that trait that annoys you, how would your life have been worse, your, your relationship? Because usually those are the things we're saying, if only he would change, if only she would do then our my, my life would be better. But again, you can't make them change. And I always go to, well, how is he trying to get me to change? And I don't like that. And so that works as well. Uh, the other thing that has worked in 50 years of marriage is we've always had our designated spaces. And that is, I always had my space where I always had like a home office. I always had, um, it was just that separation. And we always were okay with separation. There are some couples who have this, that like we have to do everything together. Um, and so that is something that you can work on to make really respecting those differences and agreeing to disagree. And now at this point, I really look at all of those things that would really annoy me, you know, eating habits and 
exercise. I've, I, I, fitness is, is just something that I'm so committed to. It's like brushing my teeth. He doesn't, he will, you know, he likes to just sit on the couch and watch TV, but it's focusing on what are the core values that we really share. And even if he doesn't exercise, if I'm going to be nagging him about it and try and make him do it, then the stress is more deleterious than uh, the, you know, so I, that is really, um, was a life lesson learned. And we always, we can't do it perfectly though. So sometimes I will get aggravated and I will, um, it will be frustrating and then let go. And, And the number one thing really overall is forgiveness. So somebody's doing something, it's annoying to you, you forgive and you say, it's a mistake. How many mistakes have I made personally? And what would it be like if somebody didn't forgive me? I love that. And as an extension, I read from your bio, you're also a new grandparent. And I know many parents run into sometimes tension with their adult children when grandparents enter the picture. And that I've only experienced this so far from the child having children myself interacting with parents and in-laws, but I now have but older teenage children. So I can imagine in the next decade, at least I might be on the grandma side as well. So I'm curious if by extension of that, you have any lessons that you've learned on the relationship with adult children and their children to help us be aware of that and to navigate that in a healthier way as well. Absolutely. Well, first of all, and I'm probably going to tear up, there is nothing more beautiful in life, in my life, than seeing your adult child as a parent. I mean, that is just like words can't express the love that comes from seeing that. Grandparenting is very important. There are some studies that show that when there's a relationship between a grandchild and a grandparent, that grandchild thrives. They do better. There's less depression, greater sense of well-being. And they look at those relationships with fondness. And then this gets back to the things, what gets in the way? Well, and it, this never was an issue because like my parents, when I was born, they lived upstairs from her parents. Grandparents lived together. They lived down the block. They saw each other so frequently. And now often there's great distance in between, but it is really crucial to have the relationship. And this leads back to the psychology of eating and all those food battles. So, you know, the grandparents, uh, they're going to bring jelly beans for your kids. And maybe you've decided no sugar and you get really upset and really aggravated. Again, it is what you are doing to to ruin that relationship, uh, to have those rules. It's worse. So kids will recover if they ate too many of those jelly beans that grandma brought, but they will remember that trauma of the relationship being severed or compromised. So grandparents, there's actually, um, I belong to a a grandma group uh, and it's this wonderful group and everybody talks about this experience. For example, what is the number one issue that grandparents may have? It's time knowing, having that perspective. We don't have much time in our lives. And so we want to have time with our grandchildren. Whereas the parents, you're working, you're busy, you're saying, I don't have time for all these family get-togethers. Or my kids have all these activities. They don't have time to be with grandma and grandpa. And so really having those honest conversations about time. And often so many grandparents are long distance. And this is a new field. And there are solutions to being a long distance. So to keep that relationship, we've got technology with FaceTime, but there are ways to have activities and expressions of, I love you. You are I being very, very specific and having, you've got mail Kids can get things in the mail from grandparents. So there's many ways that that relationship can be nurtured, but it is a very, very special relationship that all too often I see get compromised because of these other issues like like the food rules or the boundary rules that, you know, as an adult, uh, I have to have boundary with my mother or my dad. And so they can't see the grandchildren. And these are kinds of things that are really, really harmful. And kids will remember long after they've processed the, the junk food that the grandparents may have brought over. 
That's a good reframe and a good context and perspective, I think. And you're right, that imbalance of time, that's probably really important to keep in mind for the grandparents and for the parents of the young children of that imbalance and which parts of time feel difficult in each of those. And it seems like there's also some very positive overlap where I know when I was a young, overwhelmed parent, having grandparents close by when the times they visited was a lifesaver because I actually got a little bit of time back in my schedule for some self-care once in a while. And the kids loved, of course, time with their grandparents. But like you said, that's not always available in today's world with more space between kids and their grandparents. And so I love that there are ways you talk about to bridge that gap as well. I also know we've come very full circle and got to touch on a, a wide range of topics, but I want to make sure we also get to go back and touch a little bit on the health coaching side a little bit more because you have done such a great amount of work in this area. So maybe letting listeners know how they can find a coach if they're looking for one and or become a coach because I know many moms are actually turning to that, not just to direct their own family's health, but as a way to be able to help others, even with the time constraints of being a mom. Yeah, the world needs health coaches more than ever. We have such a crisis. There are six in 10 people are are metabolically unhealthy, have been diagnosed with at least one chronic disease. Health uh, coaches are needed because our providers are leaving the profession. It's estimated in the next 10 years, over 120,000 providers will leave. People are struggling to get appointments with their doctors. And there are many things that are lifestyle related People need an ally. They need support. And what does a health coach do? Well, as you say, you a an individual is a primary care provider, and health coaches teach them how to be that. They teach them how to be the CEOs of their own health, how to navigate the the world of health, of where there are so many conflicting opinions, to trust their sense of where they want to be. And ask those questions with a coaching. This process is active listening. It's a hundred percent where you are with that person and you are guiding them, but being so client centered, you're a hundred percent attentive to what they want. Where do they want to be? What do they want their health for? What gives them the greatest joy? And then breaking down, like what steps do they want to take now to change, to perhaps do something different? And the health coach is the advocate. There is a strong need in medical practices. They are hiring health coaches like crazy. Digital health companies are hiring. And so there's never been a better time to enter this field. And often I hear people saying, well, I would like to go be a nutritionist, but I need an advanced degree and it's so expensive. Well, health coaching is a much lower entry point financially as far as, as well as the qualifications. You don't need a healthcare background. Some of the best coaches don't have that. We also have medical doctors and nurses who are studying with us to be coaches. Uh, But the common thread is you have a calling to serve. You want to help someone to thrive. And it's what also we find is the process of studying health coaching, particularly these functional medicine, positive psychology principles. It's so much a life transformation. And they'll come out and they say, I just wanted to be a coach and learn about functional medicine. But who knew that it's life changing, that I have transformed how I deal with the issues that I was having with my family. And so it is crucially needed. We are seeing the future of health coaching so bright with uh, on track for insurance, for reimbursement codes. So it's just um, a wonderful time, again, because our healthcare crisis, this is real and mental health coaches support emotional wellness and they can specialize. They can work with moms. They can work with moms of kids with special needs. They can work with elderly people. They can uh, they can run groups. Um, so it's just a, a really uh, exciting profession. And I know you gave us a link specifically for the audience to learn more about that. So that will, of course, be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm for you guys listening. You also have just a wealth of knowledge online. So I'll make sure we put all those links so people can find you and keep learning from you. And a couple of questions I love to ask at the end of interviews. The first being, if there is a book or a number of books that have profoundly impacted your life, and if so, what they are and why. Hands down, it's Man's Will to Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was a Holocaust survivor. I have many family members who were lost in the Holocaust. But what he says has to do with what really gives somebody meaning and purpose. And it boils down to love and community. 
and that sense of connection with others. That's what kept him alive in, in the concentration camps, really focusing on love of his wife. And so finding that meaning and, and the meaning of sorrow, why we have tragedy, and it's to be able to contrast that experience when we are finding love. And it can be love is tied to your meaning and purpose, connection, community. And uh, so I've re read and reread that book so many times. I love it. I will make sure that is linked in the show notes as well, wellnessmama.fm. And lastly, any parting advice for the listeners today that could be related to many of the topics we've touched on or entirely unrelated life advice? You know, people just say, I want to change. This has to change. He has to change. She has, we, I have to change. My kids have to change. And this comes from Gestalt therapy. Many years ago, I studied that. Um, it's a humanistic type of psychotherapy. And the saying is, when you accept what is, you change. So you, you come to this acceptance, and that provides a profound sense of peace. And it's a physical sense as well. You accept it. That doesn't mean you like it. And just that initiates a change process because now you have a different perspective. And then that allows you to go in and actually do the work on a specific thing that you want to work on changing. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up and a kind of beautiful thing that puts a pin in a lot of the things we got to talk about today. But I am so grateful for your experience and the many thousands of people that you've helped in, in your time and sharing with us today. So thank you so much for being here. Wow, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks as always to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.